A few years ago, a famous theologian made a big mistake. Uh, he implied that there is no substitutionary atonement in the Hebrew Scripture. He, he said that substitutionary atonement, a, a, a term I'll explain in a moment, he said it's not a Hebrew idea at all. Now, in response, many of us wrote him. He is an old friend of mine, often detailing the very psalm. What we did was we wrote him about the very psalm that you and I are going to study this Good Friday. Thankfully, that famous theologian backtracked. He admitted substitutionary atonement is indeed biblical. But the whole episode got me thinking about the truth regarding substitution. Substitutionary atonement is one of those important, fancy theological terms that isn't just for academics. It's something that, quite frankly, everyone should understand. Everyone should know. The most simple and accurate summary that I've ever found came from my old professor, Ken Gangle. He said this, substitutionary atonement is the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ is God's substitute sin offering through his death on the cross, making it possible for believers to be at one with God and experience his forgiveness and salvation. Close quote. Praise God. Substitution, Jesus in the believer's place. Atonement, making the believer at one with God, atoned, experiencing forgiveness and salvation. All God's people said, amen. amen. Of course, substitutionary atonement is vividly displayed in that singular Hebrew celebration, the Day of Atonement. If you don't know about it, the Day of Atonement is where God commanded through Moses' law that, that two goats would be brought before Israel. One would be slaughtered specifically for the sins of Israel. A second goat had all the people's sins pronounced on it, and then that goat was removed far away into the wilderness, symbolically removing the people's sins far from them. Leviticus chapter 16 describes the scene. Leviticus 16, Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all their sins. He's to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on it all their wrongdoings into a desolate land, and he will release it there. Isn't that beautiful? That's substitutionary atonement, a very biblical idea indeed. It's also an idea that appears in God's list of his greatest hits. God's all-time greatest hits is a collection of songs we call the Psalms. Open your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 22, which is very important to understanding substitutionary atonement. Let's start at verse 1, where the human Messiah is forsaken as an atonement. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Look at that. The pain inherent in such a statement is palpable, is it not? David is prophetically describing here a very human speaker who feels forsaken of God. He's groaning. He is trapped. He feels far from deliverance. Have you ever felt something close to that level of pain? I bet you have. This is the person whose sweetheart just received the terminal cancer diagnosis. This is the parent whose prodigal child is out on the streets, the person facing bankruptcy or relapsing addiction. This is pain God understands. He captures it in Psalm 22. Pastor Eric Mason gave an analysis of Psalm 22, a recent Christianity Today article. He said this, Most believers I know have felt this way, praying to God and feeling a sense of abandonment. Yet, this psalm isn't only for the psalmist and those of his day and ours, but it connects to the sinless one who even had to experience the brokenness of this world. This psalm in some way is also messianic as well as prophetic in that it's fully experienced by Jesus Christ on the cross, close quote, Eric is right. In fact, Jesus quoted a form of these words while he was on the cross. And he did so in order to emphasize that he is the fulfillment of David's psalm. Jesus is the human Messiah forsaken as a substitutionary atonement. Look what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. 
And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is even a bigger idea than the Day of Atonement. Look, come on, everybody, look. Look what David and Jesus are doing. They're setting up a whole new kind of substitution where the human Messiah is forsaken as an eternal Day of Atonement. This isn't a temporary sacrifice that needs to be redone every year. This is a one-for-all sacrifice. It's not an animal being sacrificed here. This is a human who was called the Lamb of God. This sacrifice, look what it does. It combines both the scapegoat and the blood offering. And, and the parallels between Psalm 22 and the passion of Jesus continue. Look, look how David describes what's going to happen to the human Messiah. In your text, slide down to verse 14. Verse 14 through 18. Read that. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. All that is predicted in this psalm. Look, disjointed bones, strength exhausted, thirst, pierced hands and feet, evildoers surrounding, crowds watching, divided garments, cast lots for clothing. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. That is precisely what occurred as Jesus hung on the cross that Good Friday. Exactly what occurred. For example, look at how the Gospel of John describes the last of those predictions coming true. John chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing, and this is what the soldiers did. We look a bit further at John 19, at Jesus' very last words on the cross. Look what he says. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' words there in verse 30 of John 19 are a direct reference to the end of Psalm 22, what we're reading today. Look, look at Psalm 22, uh, verse 31. In fact, let me read it to you from the New American Standard. I think it does the best job with these particular lines. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed. He has performed it. Now, in Hebrew, he has performed it is the idea behind it is finished. Now, now, it is finished has an important meaning in Greek as well, but let's leave that aside. Okay, for tonight, I just want us to look at the Hebrew aspect of this reference. These New Testament references to Psalm 22 are what the Hebrews call a remez. That's your fancy word for today, boys and girls. You get to say remez on the count of three. One, two, three, remez. A remez is a fancy word that the Hebrew rabbis used for something that hinted at latent meetings. We, we use a similar word in English. We use the word allusion. Um, a remez is an allusion back to something. If you want to understand the present use of this idea, you, you must first grasp the point in the original reference. Our old friend and sometime staff member here, Doug Greenwald, put it this way. Look what Doug said. Jesus, a rabbi, teaches and speaks in a Semitic literary context even to his dying breath. Many observant Jews standing around the cross would have understood Jesus' last utterance in Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as an intentional remez back to Psalm 22.1. Doug goes on. Likewise, it is finished 
which means completed, ended, accomplished, in John 19.30 is a reference back to the very last phrase in Psalm 22. Fascinatingly, Jesus' book in Psalm 22 with two remez references to the first and last phrases of that psalm. To the best of our knowledge, this occurs nowhere else in Scripture. Now think. Why would Jesus go so far out of his way to make his cross a, a, a verbiage of remez, a, a, an allusion to Psalm 22? There are a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus wanted us to be sure we understand who he really is. He is the human Messiah, forsaken as an atonement. And number two, it is possible he wanted us to see the full picture of Psalms 22, 23, 24, which sometimes worked as a unit. First, number one, Jesus is forsaken on the cross. What does that mean? I don't think it can possibly mean that the Father and the Son were somehow separated from their triunity. As you probably know, the, the human Jesus is also fully God. He is in harmony with Father and Spirit as one God in three persons. So instead of separating the Trinity, let's look at forsaken in the other Psalms. It's used a number of times. For example, Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. All those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. In context in Psalm 9, forsaken means to be turned over to enemies, to be surrounded by evil. Same thing's true of how it's used in Psalm 37 and Psalm 71. Again, I think Doug Greenwald says it best. Look what Doug says. All throughout the Psalms, when forsaken is used, it's never in a context where God is somehow removing his presence. Rather, forsake has to do with the psalmist feeling that God seems to be letting one of his own fall into the hands of enemies for God's own purposes until he deems it time for rescue. That is a far different issue from God removing his presence. Friends, forsaken does not mean shunned. It doesn't mean abandoned. It means the wrath of all evil was allowed to fall on Jesus on the cross. In his humanity, he surely cried out in horrible pain, as we all have or will, although his was of a higher measure than we can imagine. Now, I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Uh, since Ramadan begins soon, you're asking in your best Jordanian voice, why does this matter? Right? Thank you for asking. It's a great question. Why does this matter? I'm so glad you asked. It's important because we need to always remember the truth about the triunity. It is important that we know who Jesus really is. Guys, you need to be quiet while I'm teaching. Thank you. Okay. It's important we know who Jesus is. And we must remember what forsake really means. Because here's what happens. Misinformation is being used to lead Muslims away from Christ. I have heard of Muslims who hear Christians teach that Jesus was separated from the Father. And you know what they do? Those Muslims then teach people that, look, even Christians don't believe that Jesus is fully God. Otherwise, how could he be separated? They ask, how can Jesus be fully God if the oneness of God gets separated? It is a very good question. The answer is, it doesn't. The Trinity is one and it can never be separated. On his cross, Jesus speaks a remez, a clear allusion to Psalm 22. He does this because, number one, Jesus wanted us to be sure we understand who he is. He is the human Messiah forsaken as an atonement for us. Listen one last time to my friend Doug's insight. I think this is really well said. Doug says, think about it for a moment. Relationally speaking, the hardest thing to do is to absorb the justifiable wrath of another person while in his or her presence. It is at those kinds of moments we all want to get away. We all want to be as far away from the person venting that wrath as possible. 
Could it be that as a payment for what we deserve, Jesus drained every last ounce of God's infinite wrath towards sin while in God's presence so that we would never have to absorb the wrath we deserve? Therein lays forsaken the ultimate agony of Calvary for Jesus. That's why Good Friday is so good. While we ache for Jesus, enduring wrath just for us, we are overwhelmed with gratitude that he took our place. And survivor guilt has no place here because Jesus isn't going to stay dead, right? Our only appropriate response is to be filled with gratitude at his substitutionary atonement for us. All God's people said? Look, when other people step up and help you in ways you absolutely cannot help yourself, you don't feel bad for them. You feel gratitude. It's the only thing you can feel. Look, Look at this Coast Guard photo, okay? Look, the person being saved right here is incredibly grateful for their connection to that Coast Guard diver, right? And they are also incredibly grateful that that Coast Guard diver is still connected to the helicopter, right? Because if he wasn't still connected to that helicopter, he can't do this person any good. In the same way, Jesus is forsaken by being thrown out into the stormy wrath on our behalf. He is not severed from the Father. Now back to the second reason Psalm 22 figures so mightily on the cross Read the second reason. It's possible he wanted us to see the full picture of Psalms 22, 23, 24, which sometimes worked as a unit. This one's merely possible. It's not as certain as our first reason, but I think it likely. You see, we have a few early rabbinic sources that treat Psalms 22, 23, 24 as a, as a unit. They called them David's shepherd songs. It certainly could be that Jesus wanted us to picture the whole unit. By the way, we do the same thing in our pop culture. It's a, Somebody quotes uh, one Star Wars movie. They quote Han Solo, and they say, I've got a bad feeling about this, right? We don't just picture that episode. We think of the whole. We think of the whole Star Wars saga. It's a whole, not merely individual parts. So here's how a lot of Jews that heard Jesus speaking from the cross probably pictured what he was saying because of David's shepherd songs. Psalm 22 is the Messiah forsaken, what we've just been talking about, the, the great line that summarizes it, you put me into the dust of death. Psalm 23 is the most famous of all songs ever written, the Lord is my shepherd, right? And that's the Messiah blessed, thou art with me, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for thou art with me. And Psalm 24 is the Messiah glorified. It's a beautiful song. In fact, we sing a whole lot of songs here at church that come from Psalm 24. Uh, One of the most famous lines is, He is the King of glory. All right? When Jesus alludes to Psalm 22, many surely thought of the inevitable and attendant blessing and glory as well. And that emphasis on blessing and glory is seen even in Psalm 22. Look at the last of Psalm 22. To Go to verse 29. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. means they'll finish their life and die. Happens to everybody. All those who go down to dust will kneel before him, him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be bored about his righteousness, what he has done. It is finished. Messiah willingly gives himself so others may share in his eventual and eternal glory. Look at that phrase in verse 29. Look at this now. The one who can't preserve his life. That makes no sense. That makes no sense unless Messiah is willingly giving himself up for others. You see, Ezekiel 18, 27 is very, very clear. It says, turn from wickedness and you will save your life. So there's only two reasons this person in Psalm 22 would be unable to save his life. Number one, he won't leave wickedness. He's dedicated to being evil. That doesn't seem to fit the song. 
Psalm 22 falls apart as nonsense if the Messiah is committed to wickedness. So that leaves only option number two. He must give up his life in order to bless others who are to come. It's logic. Look, look, read. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. Messiah is not just forsaken to pay the price for those who trust him. He blesses them from generation to generation. The king of glory died so people could share in his eventual and certain resurrection glory. More on that in a couple of days. Now, why would the Messiah do this? There's only one motivator powerful enough. He did it because of love. Journalist Lee Strobel wrote a great book called The Case for Christ. It's now a movie. I recommend it. He also put out a short little book called The Case for Easter. Um, I recommend this book to you. In fact, I ended up with one extra, so whoever wants one can come first. All right. To investigate the death of Jesus, uh, Strobel interviewed a famous scientist, very famous scientist, Dr. Alexander Metherill. Dr. Here's, here's this, how smart this dude is. He's got a Ph.D. in engineering and an M.D. in radiology, okay, and some other degrees as well. I want to read to you part of their exchange from the book. Lee Strobel says, It is clear that Jesus was willingly subjecting himself to what you've described as a humiliating and agonizing form of torture, and I'd like to know why. What could possibly have motivated a person to agree to endure this sort of punishment? Alexander Metherell searched for the right words. And then he said this, frankly, I don't think a typical person could have done it, but Jesus knew what was coming and he was willing to go through it because this was the only way he could redeem us by serving as our substitute and paying the death penalty that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. So when you ask what motivated him, well, and here Metherell paused, I suppose the answer can be summed up in a word, and that word would be love. Close quote. It's love. That's what substitutionary atonement's all about. It's what Psalm 22 has prepared people for over thousands of years. It's all about love. Let's read about that love together. Read with me. You take the underlined text. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of for our sins. John chapter 3, verse 16, all together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible brilliance of how you set things up through history. The Ramez, our fancy new word for today of Psalm 22, right there on the cross, first and last of that psalm. And Father, that, that is intentional. You're doing that so that I know, so that all of us can know that Jesus is the substitutionary atonement. He is the propitiation, the payment for sins. He is both the lamb sacrifice and the scapegoat who pays for the sins of all who trust him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We praise you, we praise you, we thank you. And by the way, Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not trust Jesus, does not believe in him now, that they will before they leave here at the end of tonight. Listen, friend. You are a sinner and you have sins. 
period. And Jesus is the only substitution that can pay for those sins. You can't. Your horoscope can't. Your hard work can't. Your mom and dad can't. Fancy esoteric philosophy can't. Only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Trust him right now. Just talk to God. Tell him, I, I receive Jesus. I believe in him as my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Christ, let me rejoice with you. Raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. Raise your hand and let me rejoice with you. Look up at me. Good. Thank you. That's precious. Lord, we praise you for and we exult in substitutionary atonement. The biblical teaching that Jesus Christ is God's substitute sin offering through his death on the cross, making it possible for all of us to be at one with you and experience forgiveness and salvation. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.